Episode 3308 of the Survival Podcast. It is Thursday, but today it's Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Why? You know what that means if you're a long-time listener. Expert Council Q&A show of the week, usually done on a Friday. As I said earlier this week, if you didn't catch it, because uh, you missed shows where I talked about it, I have Jeff Lawton set up for an interview for live streaming today at 1600 hours. That's 4 o'clock for you non-military types in Central Standard Time, because it's already tomorrow in Australia, where Jeff is, except it's not wake-up time tomorrow in Australia yet. It's sometime in the middle of the morning. Uh, Jeff likes to do interviews first thing, get them done, and then go on to his work on the farm, teaching, etc. So that'll be 7 a.m. his time Friday. I will then not put that out immediately as an audio, like I usually do. I will put it out Friday morning for those of you that catch the audio only. That will give me Friday off. It was a bear of a week coming back from being out of town and jamming everything together, but it'll be worth it because tomorrow I get to spend some time with my grandkids on my own little farm. So that'll be fun. What do I have lined up for you today? Uh, Chris Rossini and uh, Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams over at the Ron Paul uh, Liberty Highlights. We have, to, uh, first of all, Dr. Paul and Dan talking about how there should have been accountability to the money sent to Ukraine from the very beginning and how Dr. Paul's son, Senator Paul, kind of pointed that out in the very beginning. Of course, nobody listened. And now people are starting to wonder, like, where did all the money go? Well, you're not going to find out because the money is gone. It went into a hole and it went into Zelensky's oligarch retirement account. That's where it went. Chris Rossini will talk about the interest on the government debt piling up fast. This is a This should be a lead story every night. We're now spending close to a trillion dollars a year a trillion dollars a year to pay interest on the debt. A trillion dollars a year that we get nothing for. Think about what, as incompetent as your government is, if they actually meant to make people's lives better, would a trillion dollars a year spent making people's lives better actually do something like, oh, I don't know, build the infrastructure that are always talking about and they never do, fixing the shit that's falling apart, seeing through the common defense, the shit that government's... Think about what that could do annually. And we do nothing with it but give it to the banks. That's what central banking is. They say they, oper- they don't operate for a profit, but they keep the interest. Okay? That's how it works. Ken Berry will then talk about thoughts for the carnivore diet for people who are powerlifting. I'm just going to say, when people are like, should I do carnivore? Fun You're probably the ideal person for it. And Ken will talk more about that. Jeff Lawton, who will be on tomorrow live, uh, or actually later this afternoon live, uh, has a segment on dealing with weeds by controlling the germination conditions. This is something, because I got behind on some beds that I'm not doing, I'm having fun with. I'm having fun with myself by creating germination conditions with fire, taking my weed torch, letting this stuff grow till it's about six inches tall, and then flaming it and seeing what comes up next. And it's been kind of cool watching different weeds come up. It's not what Jeff's talking about doing, but until I get those beds rocking and rolling the way I want, we'll keep doing it and see keep what's happening. But I've seen the species change like three times now with four flamings. It's kind of interesting. Germination uh, triggering conditions, there's lots of them. Fires one, compaction's another, loosening soil's another. And Jeff will talk about that. Sean Mills will talk about moving water with solar power 
to a cistern with elevation to provide primary water on a property. Good thing. Uh, that's out of a, uh, a spring, by the way. Old Dr. Bones will talk about calcium and phosphate ions and can you actually remineralize teeth and other instances where you might need some dental help when there is no dentist in a grid-down scenario. Nick Ferguson uh, will be talking about privacy and security, your bar- privacy and security bar- barrier planting. That's a hard thing to say. Privacy and security barrier planting with multi-species shrubs, shrubs and trees. C.J. Kilmer will be talking about why the Soviet Union allowed itself to collapse versus cracking down. I have some stuff to add to that one. And then my segment today is because i got a whole bunch of you freaking out. Jack Spierko said it's okay to use and be involved with AI. I did. I actually said it's dangerous. So I'm not not hearing you when you say it's dangerous. I said that if your enemy has it, if your adversary has it, if the people that want to control you to have it, you should have it too. If your enemy has guns, you should have guns. If your enemy has a technology, you should have an equal or better technology. This is not hard to understand, but the reality here, and I've summed it up with a quote today by a gentleman named Alvin Toffler, Toffler, and I will tell you more about Mr. Toffler and, and what he was talking about when he said this when I do my segment, but the quote I've pulled is, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. That was from a book written in the 1970s and applies today. And what I'm saying about this whole fear of AI, we've done this before. Every technological innovation ever was feared. I'm sure there were people, I'm sure there were people, that when man first learned to create fire without starting with fire, said, oh, we shouldn't have that. I'm sure there were freaking Paleolithic men who wanted to ban fire. And it's been every technological innovation forward. Is this time different? Yes. Is this time also the same? Yes. So we'll expand on that for my segment, my anchor segment. With that, let's go ahead and drop on into the Ron Paul Liberty highlights you will hear from in order. A tag team by Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams. And then a second segment by Chris Rossini, and I'll be back with some thoughts on it. I think we're doing better than what they're doing in uh, that country, Ukraine, that we've been taken care of. <laughs> yeah, a couple and of dollars. That's, uh, that, that's a mess out there, but more people are recognizing that. Have you noticed, by the way, that there's more and more people who are becoming skeptical yeah. of having gone in there? But they uh, didn't pay any attention to us, uh, unsolicited advice. Uh, just stay out of those places yeah. like that because it's a lot harder to get out once you get your in, into that mess. And people find out they can make money on this deal. Lots you know? of money. But then when the money goes over, then the weapons go over there, it never stops. So it's perpetual war at the expense of the American taxpayer. It's one group of people that, that, don't, uh, that don't seem to do too well in, in this deal. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as I was listening to your opening uh, discussion, I was thinking because you talked about accountability. I know one in Washington seems to be interested in accountability for these 40, I think it's 46 billion for military aid, then another 50 or so billion yeah. for other aid, paying their salaries, etc. And I was thinking, you know, there is someone, I have to say it, I mean, from the very beginning, who said, look, 
I know I'm not going to win uh, this this uh, vote on not sending money. I'm not in favor of sending the money, even though he condemned the invasion. But can't we at least have some accountability? And that was Senator Paul. And now he's going to come out of this, I think, smelling like a rose. Because he said from the very beginning, I smell a real ripe field for corruption. And now we need to make sure we're accountable to the American people. They know where their money's going. And they laughed at him. They ridiculed him. They said he's Putin's puppet. All of these horrible things. Well, just like when he did the same with Fauci, saying we need to get behind what's going on here. This guy is not a truthful person. We find out he was absolutely correct. Of course, we knew it all along. So just like with Fauci and with COVID, I think the same thing history is going to treat Senator Paul kindly for just raising it. And I think a lot of people are going to look back and pretend he never said it because they're going to be embarrassed. It's illegal for all of us to counterfeit, and rightfully so. If any of us had the ability to counterfeit money, it would destroy us as, as a person. It would destroy all your values. It's also illegal, unconstitutional for the government to uh, counterfeit. But they found a way around it, a loophole. They created a bank that will do it on their behalf, the Federal Reserve. And, as can be expected, it has destroyed the concept of government. They've destroyed the money. Uh, you know, it should be illegal for everyone to counterfeit us and them but they do it there's not going to come a time where you're going to turn on the tv and see the treasury secretary say you know what we've gone too far we, we we're going to stop we're going to stop this spending they're not going to do it voluntarily because that's what they live for that's how they gain their their power they have people that are virtually worship them because of this so look at the great that i'm doing for you with this printed money and they always will claim that it's a crisis if they stop and that's what Janet Yellen is doing today. If they don't keep going broke, there's going to be a crisis for us. That's what they're basically saying. The real crisis is the opposite. Them continuing on this path is the crisis. And, uh, you know, there is a silver lining to the Fed raising rates. You know, we talk about all the, uh, there's this push for war, this suicidal, you know, push against nuclear powers like Russia and China. Well, the Fed is making it more expensive. Look at how the interest on a debt is increasing. So that's a good side effect, if you ask me, because, you know, you need a ton of money to fight war, especially world war. It's the same old story. Empires always stretch themselves too thin. This is a big human flaw that goes all the way back. This idea that a certain group of people can dominate the entire world, it has never been done. It most likely will never be done because it's much too expensive. And then you have human nature. You know, nobody wants to be ruled, so you're always going to have someone else that's going to go up against you. So uh, our empire is definitely stretched too thin, and the interest on the debt is piling up quickly. So, yeah, let me expand just on both of those real quick. One, I think the people who opposed all of this money, all of this expansion of the war in Ukraine, all this, I stand with Ukraine because I put a flag in my profile online. All the people that said, hey, why don't you actually inform yourself about this before you blindly run into it with, hey, let's go agitate the Russians and potentially start World War III while we send money to a nation that you claim is a democracy where the leader of the nation banned opposition parties, which is totally not a democracy. That would be a dictatorship by party versus a dictatorship by individual. All of those people are going to come out of this looking really smart, kind of like we all did with COVID, which they also reference, which makes perfect sense because some of you ain't learned to recognize the patterns yet. 
Okay, and I'm not really talking to this audience, but the, the, the population as a whole. The pattern here of deception, of lie, of running headlong into a thing without first examining why we're doing what we're doing and if that makes sense and if what we're doing actually makes something bad worse is obvious. If you step back three steps, breathe, and don't become emotional about every single freaking thing they put on the TV and say you're supposed to be emotional about. Here's, here's my rule. If the TV tells you to be emotional about something, don't. And I could just say disobey everything the TV tells you, but sometimes they use the truth. But when the news media tells you you need to be emotional about a thing, you always need to not be emotional about that thing. You can never make good, rational, logical decisions about a thing when you let emotion override logic. Go talk to the Vulcans from Star, Star, Star Trek, right? And, and then maybe you, you learn a little bit about that. All right, next up, what Chris is saying about the national debt. This is something that I forecasted, and I said it would happen by 2024 in a book I wrote that never really went anywhere. I didn't really do anything. It called The Truth About Money. All the way back in about 2012, 2013, I wrote that. And I said it on air before that, that the national debt would have over a trillion dollars in interest alone by the year 2024. And I was told I was nuts, didn't know what I was talking about, out of my mind, you know, there's no way it would happen that fast, and if it did, the whole world would fall apart. Well, it's something like 900 and something billion dollars since 2023. I think I was pretty close. But you have to really understand what that means. Let's put it in perspective. The most... Recent numbers I can get were the spend by the federal government in the year 2020. And this is what it was. In 2020, Department of Defense, the whole all the military, the inside and outside apparatus, the, the Pentagon, all the way down to the soldier eating dirt in the field, spent about $693 billion, Okay, The Department of Health and Human Services, okay, was $105 billion. These are the five largest departments. SSA, annual spend, primarily Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, $1.1 trillion. The cost of Social Security and the associated other pro uh, programs by SSA is $1.1 trillion. The interest on the debt this year is about $960 billion. We're paying almost as much money and in interest on the debt as we do for the retirement program of every senior in the country. If you think this is sustainable, you need to have your head checked. You do. Because it's not. This has to end badly eventually. When, I don't know. But we're now paying almost a trillion dollars a year in debt. And the TV says nothing about it other than, why won't the mean Republicans raise my debt ceiling? It's absolutely stupid on its face. Don't get me into debt ceiling talk. Let's talk about something better. How about power lifters and the carnivore diet? Sounds to me like a match made in heaven. What does Ken Berry have to say about it? Hey, Jack Spearco and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Daniel. Daniel's question is, would you recommend eating any differently if I'm doing power lifting? I've been powerlifting for about three months and intend to continue doing so. I was not sure if I should adjust anything about carnivore if I'm exercising heavily. Uh, this answer is very complex and convoluted. The answer is no. Eat your meat and eggs. 
uh, indeed, before the plant-based diet and, and vegan and vegetarian diets became very popular. So back in the, the 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, all power lifters, without exception, ate as much fatty red meat and eggs with the yolk as they could get into their gullet each and every day. And they ruled the world. Uh, now, we've got something now that helps power lifters be able to eat a plant-based diet and still make gains in the gym, and it's called illegal steroids. And the vast majority of the power lifters, especially the power lifters that you see that, that say they're vegan or plant-based, are 100% of the time on the juice, on the steroids. And anybody who's know, knows anything about powerlifting, bodybuilding, and human physiology, aka a doctor who's paid attention to this, can look at a human body and tell you with almost 95% degree of certainty that that person is taking illicit steroids or not. Typically, you can look at the, the trapezius muscle development, and if it, it, it is almost a dead giveaway that somebody's on the juice. So if you see someone who's eating a plant-based or vegan diet and they say, oh, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm meat-free, look at the traps. If the traps are ungodly, inhumanely large, they're on the juice. And so I, I don't I think all you need to eat to develop the, the most amazing, perfectly healthy muscular human body is fatty red meat and eggs. I'd try to include some type of liver two to four ounces twice a week just to make sure you're getting uh, many more vitamins and minerals. But otherwise, eat your meat, eat your eggs. The end. Hope this answer helps. This is Dr. Barry. See you next time. So I'm just going to, I want as many questions for Ken as possible. He's uh, an incredible resource, but I am going to tell you something right now that should be obvious when it comes to Ken and his advice. The reason he stopped calling it keto or even carnivore and, 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 and uses those only to differentiate between what you eat and what you don't eat now is because, well... He changed the overall overriding name of what he teaches to proper human diet. So no matter what scenario you come up with, he would say, well, are you a human? Okay, then this is the proper human diet. And, and there may be some things like, you know, we have talked about how some people have like actually developed like meat allergies or something where you can't eat a certain thing, and then that would be an exception. But the general rule is, but what if I'm pregnant? Eat a proper human diet. Well, what if I'm powerlifting? Eat a proper human diet. What if I'm young? Eat a proper human diet. What if I'm a woman? Eat a proper human diet. Are you a human? And that's just where he's coming from with this, and that's why I really like the entire you know kind of brand being built around the whole proper human diet concept. Anyway, with that, let us move forward and hear from Jeff Lawton on controlling weeds and one way to do that to understand what we call germination triggers and what those are. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley, 400 meters below sea level in Jordan. And uh, I have a question here about um, someone who's got a problem with uh, weeds. And um, this is uh, very common that uh, people think the problem's uh, the weeds, it's actually the germination condition. And often you can look at a neighbor and say, oh, they've got weeds, I have controlled my weeds, but my weeds keep coming up, they must be coming from a neighbor. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, they're probably not. Um, weeds have uh, an ability to have very, very long 
and germination resilience. Uh, seeds can be viable for tens of years, sometimes longer. Um, we're always surprised how long um, seeds are viable. Some in the genetic stock can go 100 years often. And we've seen that with uh, plants that we thought were extinct and then you change the land use policy, say in a new uh, botanic garden, uh, you lock up uh, animals and stock away from an area and plants that have been thought to be extinct germinate beyond their seed viability period that we think. So um, many weeds are 10 to 20 years in viability. They're just sitting in the ground waiting for the germination conditions. So it's actually the germination conditions you're battling, not the weeds. The weeds are just an indicator. Um, yeah, they might not be native. doesn't really matter. A lot of us are in non-native parts of the world from our heritage. Plants, animals, fungi, all of us, we've all moved around. And it's been a natural process of drifting and rafting, even without jet aeroplanes. But um, what you're actually looking at, you need to change your perspective. You're looking at the germination condition favours the weeds because of the conditions they require to germinate. It might be the fact that you've got compacted soil, you get deep, deep taproot weeds. It might be the fact you've got a lot of soils too loose um, and it's continuously kept ploughed and tilled and then you get weeds that come in, they've got hairnets that sort of hold it together. Uh, mineral deficiencies, some weeds uh, work on mineral deficiencies, particularly things like nitrogen deficiency where you've overcropped an area or you've taken the fertility right down. Plants that fix nitrogen and have bacterial associates, which are like the peas and beans, um, majorly peas and beans. There are some non-peas and beans family, non-leguminous, non-leguminosi plants that fix nitrogen as well. They have partnerships with bacteria in the soil. So, and, and then it can be a potassium deficiency because you've had too much fire and a lot of the potassium's gone up in smoke. So the germination condition is what stimulates the weeds. You're always going to have weed seeds. That's what I'm saying. You're, always, you're never getting away from weed seeds. They're going to be there for hundreds of years, probably. Um, and going into a war against the weeds and eradicating every one is not going to work. You're just going to be doing that forever. It's never going to change. But if you change the way you see the um, environment, you see ecosystems, they're not complete. They're damaged. There's, there's, there's some, something there that is, is um, unnatural in the normal ecological sense. So the idea is to bring up the ecological condition to be extremely fertile, lots of life in the soil and lots of plant layers or animal combination plant layers. So you have to look at your system, um, garden, farm, you don't say what it is, but this is a very common question. I've got a a very practiced answer on this Uh, from a productive ecosystem, sustainable ecosystem, from a point of view of, of ecological stability, you have to look at the land and say, how, how dense is the planting? How many plant layers? How many, is, it, is it complete? Is the ecosystem um, got no empty niches? Because if you have a complete ecosystem, if you have a natural environment, a natural ecosystem assembly, as it appears in nature, there are no weeds because there's no room for weeds because there's no gaps. There's nothing missing in that 
it, it has a complete density. It cannot have any more components. It can't have any more occupants. Now, if you look at your garden, you look at your landscaping, you look at your um, productive systems, and you think, how do I fill this in with a complete assembly in all its layers, in all its potential components and occupants at a density that would mimic the local ecosystems around me. What does the lo- what did the local ecosystem I don't say yeah, what did the eco- local ecosystem look like? What did the local ecology look like? Or if you have some natural systems that you're pretty sure are pristine, then you can just go and absorb observe them and see well, what were they like? Um, if they're really large trees and you don't want really large trees, you're going to have to look at like, well, what assembly mimics something of that density without the large trees with a smaller system or to my convenience of what I want to produce or how I want to work or have a functional landscape. Relook at the landscape and see how you can fill it up. Now, it doesn't have to be native plants. People go all on about being precious about natives only. Often the fertility has gone way beyond what natives could recover but there are lots and lots of user-friendly plants that can fill all the gaps and take up the the um, niches so there's no empty zones there's there's enough density of living components that you can then say right how do i keep that now um happy how do i keep that fertilized or how do i have an assembly of 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 elements that don't need too much um, nutrient don't need to be supplied with extra um, nutrient in any way or minimums, and then you go from there. And um, that's how you that's how you win. You win a spatial race with the weeds. You're in a spatial race with the weeds. Make sure you disadvantage them a bit, and then win that race. There you go. Yeah, I think the important takeaway is literally anything that you do that changes the soil can induce seed germination of a massive seed bank in your soil that you never knew was there. You will see things grow that you didn't know existed. Here's an example um, that it's just really interesting. Nothing was really done to the soil except the soil biology itself changed. So when I moved to this property, I never saw a plant called cleavers on it. And I went about eight years never seeing cleavers. And then only over in the area of my food forest a couple years ago, all of a sudden cleavers popped up everywhere. Now that wasn't a soil disturbance as much as it was a soil soil biological change. But what that means is if you dig, you cause weeds. Bill Mollison used to say digging causes weeds and weeds cause digging. And somewhere you have to break the cycle and stop digging. And people would say, well, then how do I plant my plants? Well, you have to dig a hole to put your plant in. But if you're putting seed in, you use a finger hole, right? You know, and you only dig enough, and you don't turn the soil. You know what else causes weed germination? Compaction. If you compact soil, certain things will germinate. Again, fire will cause germination, as, as Jeff was referencing, uh, and massive disturbance where you don't only dig it, but you loosen it. And you can literally take in any given piece of land, you could make, let's say, four. Squares just separated by the, 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 the size of the square itself. You got a two-foot square, two-foot more, another two-foot square, two-foot over, another two-foot square. Do that, and you take one area, 
and just take a, a tamper and just slam the soil down. Take a weed flamer, you know, and maybe wet the area around it so it doesn't spread and, and burn off the vegetation in a two foot by two foot square. Take the next one and turn the soil completely over. Then go to the next one and take something like a pitchfork in that two foot by two foot square and just loosen it. Don't turn it, just loosen it. And wait a few weeks. And maybe give it a bit of water. And you'll see completely different plants growing that close to each other that will largely be from seed bank in the soil. And when you understand that, you could start thinking more about your weed control methodology. And the first thing to do is stop triggering the germination uh, and then control what germinates when you have to do something to trigger some germination. Uh, but like Jeff said, if you try to eradicate weeds while continuing to trigger germination, it's a never-ending process. And it will never you'll never be on the other side. You'll never be on the right side of it. Nature will always win. I set up my presentation down in Bastrop. My last slide was a picture of a large redwood log from a falling redwood. And right in the center of it, in a crack, and the log had begun to break down and be colonized by mosses and fungi, there was a little tiny spruce tree. And I mean a spruce tree that I could, I could just hold in my hand. That's how small it was. And you would maybe see a little bit sticking out of both ends of my hand. It was maybe seven inches tall. And it was a, a spruce variety that gets very large pretty quick. I mean, in 50 years, that tree will be well over 100 feet tall. And I said, this is a fallen tree and a tree growing on top of a log that it will eat. And that nature can never be stopped. It is unstoppable. And if you turn something that's unstoppable into an adversary, you're behaving stupidly. Right? The human race likes to behave stupidly. We've been conditioned to do so. That doesn't mean the person's stupid. It's a stupid behavior because you can't win against an unstoppable force. So it is important to channel that force into your allies. So if you're noticing something is creating weeds and there are weed you don't want, you need to either find a way to harness those weeds for a use or change the thing that's causing the germination. And one of the easiest things we can tend to do with larger blocks of land is proper grazing technique. We'll control a ton of this. Anyway, I've probably said more than Jeff did at this point. Time to move on. Let's hear from Sean Mills about moving water with solar energy. Hello, Survival Podcast listeners and Jack. This is Sean Mills from HackMyHomestead.com. And today you have an expert panel question on solar water pumping. So here we go. Hi, Sean. What are some options for solar-powered lift pumps? Details. I have a great spring with consistent flow at the low point on my property that is being captured into a 55-gallon drum. I would like to install a submersible solar pump to lift water to a 3,000-gallon partially buried polytank at the top of the property, about 60-foot lift and 500 feet of run. I plan to have an overflow line that will run into a pond downhill from the tank. The rest of the property will be fed by the back pressure in the fill line. I would like to pump I would like the pump to run only when there is enough solar power and not use any battery. The closest place to install the solar panels is 100 foot away and the system would use its own 50 to 1000 watt array. What would be the best pump set uh, step up? He might mean set up here to accomplish this. And is there any reason that the system wouldn't work as expected? Uh, so I asked a few questions and got some additional information. I asked him what size pipe he's going to use. He's thinking one inch or one and a quarter. We're going to assume one inch poly. Uh, 
uh, how many fittings between the 55 gallon drum and the tank probably three t's and a couple of 90s what kind of flow rate are you getting from the spring into the drum five plus gallons per minute the spring is 30 gallons per minute uh, and he's hoping for around one gallon per minute from the 55 gallon tank to the 3k tank which should leave plenty of overhead for the inflow to the 55 gallon tank so what he's saying there is at one gallon per minute i should have four five times the amount of water flowing into the drum as i'm pumping out of it uh, and then I asked him if he had, was looking for a specific uh, gallons per minute or PSI for the rest of the property, uh, utilizing that back pressure. And he said not really. It would be for drip irrigation and animal water on float valves. He's expecting 5 to 25 PSI, depending on how far below the tank the location is. If additional pressure was needed for a future connection, a booster pump would be added at the end location. All right, so here are a few things to consider. In sizing the pump, we need to be considering both the static head and friction head. So static head is the total vertical height between the pump intake and the discharge pipe. One thing to remember there is that the 60 vertical feet he described may not include the depth of the barrel or the top of the tank where the water is going to go in. So you need to consider those things. Uh, and then friction head is the amount of resistance of the water against the interior or the, of the pipe. Uh, and or through any fittings. So if we're using one inch poly pipe, we're going to have six foot of head per 100 feet of pipe at 10 gallons per minute. So one of the things to remember when you're considering friction head is the faster you're pumping water through, the more friction you're going to create. And that all of these numbers are expressed in additional vertical feet of head equivalents okay so six feet of head per 100 foot of, of pipe uh, each 90 degree elbow will add 2.25 feet of head and the t's will add 1.7 feet through the flow side and six feet through the branch side so if the water is taking a 90 degree turn uh, then it's going to be six um, six feet but if it's just flowing through and then you've got the branch off to the side it only adds 1.7 uh, so with three T's and three uh, elbows, plus I'm assuming he's going to have a gate valve and a check valve. Um, gate valve is going to add about one foot of head and a check valve is going to add about 17 feet. You're going to end up with about 29.95 feet of friction head from the fittings, uh, 30 feet of friction head from the 500 feet of pipe, plus the 60 foot of static head for a total dynamic head of 119.9 feet. So that's what we have to overcome. Um, we can take the 119.9 feet and multiply that times 0.433 to get our PSI. So if we do that math, we get 51.9 PSI. So that's the pressure that the tank has to be able to put out in order to push water to the top of that pipe. Uh, another way to do that is to divide um, the number of feet by 2.31. So I'm sorry, uh, yeah, divide by 2.31 or multiply times 0.433. Um, so in order to get white water to the top of that pipe, the pump is going to have to be capable of about 55 PSI or rated for at least 125 feet of head. And I say both of those numbers because when you're looking at your different uh, uh, pumps, they will give you a bunch of information and they might only they might give you one or the other. Um, now, there are some 
uh, pumps on Amazon that are called EcoWorthy that are direct solar pump uh, DC uh, pumps. And you could wire directly from a solar panel with the correct voltage to uh, the pump itself. I would suggest to put an inline um, linear current, current booster. And uh, that way it, you basically at that point, the pump doesn't kick on until it's got all of the power it needs to go, uh, which is going to reduce the pump cycling and uh, increase the pump life. Now, 100 foot is a pretty good ways uh, if we were going to use uh, actual 500 to 1,000 watt array. Um but we don't need anywhere near that for this. One solar panel is going to do the job here. Um, and so what I would do is I would wire, uh, you know, if I had that much solar, I would use most of that for something else. And I would wire one panel and run a 100-foot cord down to the, um, um, the linear current booster and then run that into the submersible pump. I actually wrote up a little web uh, page at hackmyhomestead.com slash SWP or solar water pumping and uh, put a few links to some different things I would suggest. But uh, this is absolutely doable. Since you're not pressurizing the water, you can get by with a pretty cheap pump to do this and um, not a problem at all with, with the 100-foot solar with the one panel. So uh, that question came in from Ryan from homesteadconsultant.com. I appreciate it, Ryan, and uh, reach out to me at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmyhomestead.com if you need any more information. Thanks. Perfect question and answer to demonstrate why I have an expert panel in the first place. Can I tell you how to move some water around with solar? Yes. Could I give you an answer like you just heard from Sean Mills? Absolutely not. And that is why, even though Sean is well known for solar, he's also just known for power and energy in particular anyway. We, it's been a long time since we've talked about choosing generators for the homestead. And I'll have Sean on next month, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about. We're going to go really back to basics with it. And we're lucky to have Sean and all these other wonderful people on the expert panel. Speaking of being lucky, we're very lucky that we have two medical doctors on the panel. And you've already heard from one today, Ken Berry. You'll now hear from the second one, Doc Bones, on dealing with dental issues and the potential to remineralize your teeth. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Dan, who writes, Besides a good diet, flossing, and brushing, I've read of dental products that contain calcium and phosphate ions, such as casein phosphopeptide amorphous calcium phosphate, cpp ACP. These products are said to help promote teeth remineralization. As an older guy, I'm more aware of having healthy, strong teeth. Do you have dental products with CPP-ACP and also any natural solutions that you would suggest that help with this? I've read where products like Trident chewing gum helps has to do with extra production of saliva and also swishing with hydrogen peroxide helps as well. Thanks, Dan. Dan, I'm glad you mentioned this topic as many in the preparedness community are medically prepared, but few are dentally prepared. If a disaster knocks us off the grid one day, the family medic's going to have to take care of dental problems as well as medical. 
This includes dealing with cavities, broken teeth, tooth extractions, tooth abscesses, and much more. We at Doom and Bloom developed a medical kit specifically for survival settings which can help. You'll find that on our store. As you age, you lose the minerals in your teeth. This may be caused by eating sugary and acidic foods. It also occurs from bacteria accumulation in your mouth. Once the enamel or bone are gone, there's no way to get them back without replacing the tooth entirely. However, it's possible to help replenish these minerals with lifestyle changes and home remedies before tooth decay occurs. We call that remineralization. To your question, Dan, everyone knows the importance of having healthy teeth, even in older age groups. Prevention with good dental hygiene is very important. Products like sugar-free chewing gum help in the production of saliva. If you don't have enough saliva and develop things like dry mouth, a common old age thing, they can lead to increased plaque, tooth decay, and gum disease. Hydrogen peroxide is a little more controversial. It can be damaging to your gums, your tongue, and your tooth enamel, leading to painful decay that could be costly to repair. Like many chemicals, hydrogen peroxide is only safe in small doses, not straight out of the brown bottle you see in the supermarket. It should be diluted in water in a one-part peroxide to two-parts water formula, like the commercial rinses. I would suggest using it for 60 seconds, maybe once a week or so. Now about CPP-ACP. That stands for casein phosphopeptide amorphous calcium phosphate. CPP is derived from milk protein. Together with calcium and phosphate, it's thought to help remineralize worn down enamel and inhibit certain oral bacteria like strep mutants. Streptococcus mutants is a bacterium that naturally forms in your mouth and can build up on the surface of teeth at any age. It's a major cause of cavities, also known as tooth caries. It's also found in heart infections like endocarditis, which is why you're given antibiotics if you have heart issues and need dental procedures. CPP-ACP can be delivered to the tooth surface in a variety of ways, such as in chewing gum, lozenges, topical cream, mouth rinses, toothpaste, and as an additive in filling cement. The trade names they commonly go by include Recaldent, R-E-C-A-L-D-E-N-T, GC Tooth Mousse, and MI Paste. These are reasonable options, especially for the older patient. Now, there are natural remedies as well to help remineralize tooth enamel. They include, well, some basic things, brushing your teeth, using a fluoride toothpaste. Now, don't shoot the messenger. This is a recommendation of the ADA. Toothpaste does not get ADA approval unless it contains fluoride. Cut out sugar. Of course, sugar is highly acidic and interacts with bacteria in the mouth to break down tooth enamel. More importantly, one study found that a higher frequency in sugar consumption led to demineralization much more than the amount of sugar that was consumed at any one time. In other words, eating sugary foods in small amounts on a regular basis does more harm than eating the occasional sugar-laden dessert. Important to know. You want to chew sugarless gum. Sugarless versions actually promote tooth remineralization. We mentioned that. Sugar-free gum helps remove sugar, plaque, and carbs from teeth while also encouraging your salivary glands to produce more saliva. Gum may also act as a barrier to block mineral loss, so consider chewing it after or between meals. Consuming fruit and fruit juices in moderation. Fruit juices are mostly acidic. They bind to calcium and strip it away. You definitely need to eat less acidic fruit and fruit juices if you eat a lot of them. Keep that in moderation. You want to get more calcium and vitamins. You can replace calcium by eating calcium-rich foods. For example, a 2003 study found that eating calcium-rich cheese could counteract the effects of eating certain sugars. A 2012 study found that taking vitamin D supplements may help prevent cavities. 
then you want to consider probiotics. When considering probiotics for remineralization, it's important to choose strains that are naturally produced in the mouth. That way you're replacing the good bacteria without introducing potentially harmful strains. You can find probiotics in supplement form in certain yogurt brands. You'll need to take these daily for the best results. Treat dry mouth. Dry mouth occurs when there isn't enough saliva production. I think I mentioned that saliva is an integral part of remineralization. It not only prevents dry mouth, but it also contains phosphate and calcium. You want to also reduce starchy foods. Potatoes, rice, bread, these are all loaded with simple carbohydrates. These increase the amount of fermentable sugars in the mouth, which can erode your teeth. And, of course, you want to drink more water. We're all walking around a little dehydrated, so this is an unhealthy thing in general. You want to drink more fluid and also help increase your saliva production. Hope this helps. This is Joe Holden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and educational materials available at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Uh, don't eat sugar, do eat carnivore keto? I think it would do amazing things for our health in many ways, including our dental health. Just a thought. Just a thought. And I can say I've seen an improvement in my own dental health since I've switched. So that's just, you know, anecdotal evidence there and one man's opinion, but... It is it is definitely a thing. Anyway, moving on, Nick Ferguson will talk about building a privacy and security barrier using a multi-level uh, forest uh, arrangement, basically a, a hedgerow in the form of a forest and a quite thick one when you hear what he's going to recommend. Alrighty, I've got a twofer this week and both from Michigan. This is Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. And this first one comes from Ian. He says, Hi Jack, quick counsel question for you or Nick Ferguson. I have a tremendous amount of garlic mustard that pops up this time of year. Thoughts on harvesting for chicken rabbit fodder? It grows in before the native plants, so it's quite identifiable and accessible, considered to be invasive. Thanks, Ian, Southeast Michigan. Good question. It's not a great fodder plant simply because it's not very palatable. That basically means the animals just don't like eating it. It's not toxic to rabbits, but they just don't really enjoy it. So honestly, I just cut it and use it as chicken bedding to be made into compost. Your chickens are probably going to peck at it a little bit. They're probably not going to get much out of it. Um, <clears throat> but you can harvest it and use it as bedding to be made into compost. That's going to end up being a great soil amendment. Uh, now for the second one, also from someone in Michigan, but there's tons of details with this one, so I'm going to skip around the email a bit, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I have to say this is a very well-done question, quick and short question that's down to the point with a bunch of pertinent information as details, so I have stuff to go on. Well done. Um, and this is from just A. So uh, he says, or she says, Hello, Jack. Question for Nick Ferguson, Jeff Lawton, or anyone with knowledge in the permaculture space. What plant tree would you recommend to serve as a natural privacy and security barrier? Well, <clears throat> before I get into the details, I'm just going to say there's no one plant or tree that I'd recommend to serve as a natural privacy and security barrier because I don't know of anything that does everything. You need a whole plethora of plants and trees you need a essentially an ecosystem 
to do the job and do it well throughout winter and summer and spring and fall and do all of the things that you're looking for in a barrier in your details. So I'm just going to skip through a little bit of these. Um, zone 5B, 80 acres, fully wooded, um, fairly flat minor hills. Uh, it's about half an hour away from there where they live. Its future use is going to be a primary residence, uh, orchard, fodder systems, etc. We'll put in typical front gate uh, made of wood, metal, concrete for access to property. Goals of the privacy security barrier. They want security, privacy visually pleasing. Um, they want some sort of thorns or other aspect that makes walking through the barrier undesirable to humans. Still allow wildlife to move through, unlike a typical fence or wall. Uh, most wildlife will just bypass typical fences and walls. Uh, Daryl just jump over them. Uh, plan to plant the barrier 5 to 10 feet wide to provide some limited protection. Um, you're talking like uh, 10, 15 feet wide plus 15 feet, 20 feet wide with just one species in there. So you need to, those are rookie numbers, you need to bump those numbers up. <laughs> it's going to be way, way bigger, wider than I think you're thinking. Um, privacy, the planted wall of sh tree shrubs will leaf out from spring to fall, provide noise reduction, visual obstruction. Uh, same thing, 5 to 10 foot wide barrier, um, and it needs to provide privacy in the winter when leaves are not present with the trunks and branches. So, yeah, again, we're talking like 15 feet wide per set of species. So you're going to have winter protection, and that's going to be an evergreen, and that's going to be at least 15, maybe 20 feet wide. And then you're going to have some deciduous plants and trees, and that's going to be another 20 to 30 feet wide um, and then, you know, if you're wanting something that's going to be all thorny, that's going to be some more. So we're talking like 30 to 60 feet wide minimum for this visual and sound and security barrier. <clears throat> um, all right. Uh, let's see. Skimming back down here. Uh, known complications cost due to size of barrier. Buying starter plants is probably too expensive, so planning on planting seeds. Um, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So, all right. I know this is going to sound a little self-serving, but if you're a long-time listener, you know I design things with multiple functions stacked as much as possible. It's a fun game to play that really benefits the resiliency of a design. So, it can come across like my answer is always the same kind of thing. That's not because I think this answer is the magic bullet but simply because this answer solves so freaking many problems. And my answer is to start out with at least two of the three fodder trees I recommend. Yep, it kind of always comes back to fodder trees. So here's the deal. You're going to be planting tens, if not hundreds of thousands of trees, and getting a good barrier going and growing is not going to be very likely or very feasible with seeding. It will take decades if you're seeding. And it's going to take a lot of effort to protect those seeds and manage them and make sure they don't just get crowded out. And that would be kind of expensive. It's not actually cheaper to go with seed than with cuttings. So why those trees? Um, well, specifically, I like to focus on the hybrid poplar and hybrid willow. Those two hybrid trees 
are super simple and easy to propagate from cuttings. Hardwood cuttings are dead simple, and you can even make softwood cuttings in the summer. And uh, the re- so the reason why you need to focus on these is you can get a handful of them growing on your property. For something or a project that big, man, I just go ahead and, and start start out with like a hundred of each and just take cuttings to plant out thousands of sticks. All you need is to have a cleared perimeter and you go out there with a pair of pruners and a rubber mallet. Uh, if you can get those kinds of stakes in the ground with a mallet, I don't know what your soil's like. You want a flat cut on the top so it doesn't uh, damage your mallet and it doesn't split the stick. And you want a bevel cut on the bottom of the stick so it penetrates the ground easier. It only needs to be about four inches long. It's, it's seriously just like a tap or two if you have nice, soft soil after winter that's moist. But you can use longer sticks if you want. They go in the ground as soon as it's warm enough to have soft ground. If you go this route, you could save thousands and thousands of dollars by just taking sticks off of those trees, jabbing them in the ground, and letting them root and grow. They grow very fast. Now, those are not going to do the whole job, but you can do that portion for almost free. You're going to have your initial planting cost, but if you're growing fodder anyways, you might as well get them started now and use them for your uh, security stuff around the perimeter. The second half of the tree species, I'd suggest looking into Maclura pomifera, also known as Bodark or hedge apple, horse apple, lots of different names. And that's going to be a deciduous but thorny tree, and it's as strong as a bull. So on top of all those, you're going to need to add in some evergreens that will work well in your climate. Your local ag extension agency should be able to recommend appropriate evergreens to fill out the year-round visual blockage. But you're going to be looking at a perimeter, like I said, of around 30 to 60 foot thick to put in a good windbreak and full privacy hedge with the deciduous trees and the evergreens. Uh, Likely candidates for your region, I'm just kind of spitballing off of the hip here, so don't take this too seriously. Check with your local ag extension agency, um, because I just don't do work up in Michigan. So um, I'm guessing eastern red cedar, that's Juniperus virginiana, eastern white pine, that's Pinus strobus, and my three go-to evergreens are going to be black spruce, jack pine, and Norway spruce. And the black spruce is Pikea mariana, and jack pine is Pinus banksiana. Norway spruce is Pikea abies. All right, that just about does it. You need something quick growing and deciduous to get some quick summer privacy, preferably something you can grow yourself for free or cheap. The two hybrid fodder trees are great for that. Then you need to add in some deciduous overstory slower growers, like the Bodark for strength and thorniness. And then you're going to need to add some evergreens to block winter, sight, vision, whatever, and wind. And the deciduous stuff will help, but just not going to do the whole job. Uh, So the only other thing on top of all that would probably be some shrubby nitrogen fixer like autumn olive. And you could probably throw in something thorny um, like a wild rose I don't know how well they do up there. I bet you have a bunch of wild rose because we had a whole bunch of it in Ohio when I lived up there. So uh, 
I think that just about does it. I'm going to be in Michigan July 7th teaching a class at Mark Baker's place. So all of you frozen people who live uh, that far north and like to breathe winter air that hurts when you breathe air, um, come on out, meet me, or send me an email if you're interested in a consult, nick at homegrownliberty.com. Best of luck with your tree hedge. I'm Nick Ferguson from Rare Plant Store and Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. So everything he said is bang on. There is a balance to be made, though, in trying to make something security and privacy noise blocker. And that if you let things overgrow, then using the things in the thing are difficult. And so, you know, cleared paths and things like that then become a way for people to get in. So even though Nick said not to use seed, and I completely agree for the majority of this, the cuttings uh, or very small starts will go much faster with some of this stuff uh, and can be very affordable. There is this particular plant he didn't mention that I think would make an outstanding component of the security part of this. I think it goes on the uh, the en- like front towards enemy on a Claymore mine, so it goes on your outside of this. Meaning from the inside, it doesn't really affect you and you can have access. And that particular plant is called Osage Orange. And as everything else is coming up, you can be training your Osage Orange fence and let the rest of everything Nick gave you do what it does. And this is how you would do that. Osage Orange, also known as Bodark, there's some other names for it. It's a very waxy green looking tree with some thorns on it. Thorns are good for security. And you can go find them, and you'll recognize it immediately in the fall because it produces a great big green orb. They also call it, that's what they call Osage Orange. Some people call it horse apple, though horse apple is a different thing for a lot of people. I try to use uh, common names, but sometimes that creates confusion. So if you go look up Osage Orange, you'll find exactly what I'm talking about. And you could probably find one growing somewhere near you, zone 5 and down. I don't know if they go into Zone 4. They definitely go into Zone 5, Zone 6. They were all over Pennsylvania when I was a kid. This tree was made very famous by some of our founders, including Thomas Jefferson, uh, using it as fence creation. And what you can do is you take those big balls, you throw them in a bucket of water, and they'll fall apart. And seeds will come out of them. And then you separate those seeds. And then about every six inches in a line where you want your fence to be, plant one. You don't need them that close but some of them won't come up. And I would say plant two in every hole. And when they come up the first year, they'll make a big, long whip. Like, they'll grow several feet in the first year. And they'll be covered with spiky thorns. Then take each one and bend it over, alternating. So if you bend one to the left, bend the next one that you're going to keep to the right so they're on top of each other, and, and basically pin them down to the ground without breaking them. If they if they crack a little bit or whatever at the bend, it'll be okay. You want again, you want to do this in that first year when the whole thing's still green and it will handle being bent. What will happen in the second year is it will start to send up a bunch of branches that will act like new trees, and you can kind of weave those together and you can end up with something that's about as high as your head or higher that's several feet thick. And I believe it was Ben Franklin that said it would be hog tight, meaning pigs can't get through it. If pigs can't get through it, you're not getting through it, and nobody else is getting through it. This would not provide the quiet, peaceful, vision-blocking, wind-blocking, noise-blocking in of itself, but it could become a security layer on top of 
basically this strip forest that does all the other things and has fodder and other things going on in it. That's just my thought about how to take kind of what Nick's saying here to yet another level of security. As far as Wild Rose, um, yes, it will grow where you are. Uh, I was in uh, Kalispell, Montana, and Wild Rose was everywhere. If it'll grow in Kalispell, it'll grow where you are. Let's go on and take another one. This one from Professor C.J., the Dangerous Hiskey... His, uh, um, yeah, the Dangerous History Podcast, and he is a new member of the Expert Council. I've worked with CJ for a long time. He was part of the Unloose the Groose crew while we were doing that side podcast, and a great guy. And the question for him is, why did the Soviets let their country collapse, let all the satellite republics go, and change politically at a huge level in the 1980s versus doing what most communist regimes have done when that type of rebellion comes up, which is send out the tanks and the troops and put it down. Because it really is an aberration. If you look at the history, not just of communism, by the way, but of governments that we could think of as being fully tyrannical, when people decide they've had enough, they generally are met with force. And they really weren't here. Why? For some perspective on that history, CJ. Hey, this is CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast, and I'm answering a listener question that is, why didn't the Soviet government beat the people into submission rather than quit and let the communist government collapse in the 1980s? I honestly believe that the bulk of the credit for the Soviet government and their satellite states in Eastern Europe not trying to use brute force to prevent communism from falling in those places that by far the biggest credit for that not turning violent goes to Mikhail Gorbachev himself. I've read a lot of different books about the decline and fall of the Soviet Union, and honestly, the more I've read, the more I have just been impressed by Gorbachev, by his decency, by his conscience. I mean, it's a miracle that that decent of a human being grew up in the Soviet Union and even rose to a position of power within the Communist Party. It is just, to me, uh, a fluke, a miracle that such a good person could do that. And you can look back at previous instances where there were major demonstrations and uprisings in the Communist world, and uh, under other leaders, the Soviet government did not hesitate to use brutal force. So, for example, when there were demonstrations and uprisings in Hungary in, I believe it was 1956, I'm pretty sure Khrushchev was in charge at the time, and he sent in the tanks and the troops and crushed it. And then again in Czechoslovakia in, I believe it was 1968, there were demonstrations and uprisings, and Brezhnev, who was in charge of the Soviet regime by that point, used brute force to put it down. And then, of course, you know, it's not the Soviets, but just look at the way that the Chinese government responded to the Tiananmen Square demonstrations. So, yeah, had you had a more conventional communist politician in charge in the late 80s, early 90s, I think there's a very good chance there would have been at least attempts to use brute force to hold it together. But again, I think Gorbachev was just a decent human being who did not have the stomach for that. 
If memory serves, I believe fairly early on in the unraveling of the Soviet Empire, Gorbachev did deploy force against some demonstrators, and I think some people got hurt, maybe even killed, and he was just like really shaken by that. And from that point on, it seems like he refused to ever use force against peaceful demonstrators, no matter how radical their goals might have been. And Gorbachev, in the last days of the Soviet Empire, he had a lot of people around him who were urging him to do what Khrushchev and Brezhnev had done and to send in the tanks and the troops and try to use brute force, and he just refused to do it. And, you know, you could say that the communist satellite regimes in Eastern Europe deserve some credit for also not using their own force against demonstrators and things. And for sure, certain individuals in some of those regimes do deserve some credit for, you know, standing down, even when in some instances they were told, like, to go and shut down demonstrations and use force. But keep in mind that the vast majority of regimes in communist Eastern Europe at the time were total sock puppets of the Soviets almost to the same degree that, like, the Karzai government in Afghanistan was a sock puppet of the U.S. And so if Gorbachev had told those regimes to crack down, they would have done it. And furthermore, again, a different Soviet leader would have just sent in Soviet troops. And in many instances, those troops are already in those countries. But yeah, I think ultimately this is a case where an individual made a huge difference to history. And my understanding is that Michael Malice has a very similar take in his recently published book, The White Pill, which I have not yet read. But I've heard several interviews with him about the book, and it sounds like he's come to a very similar conclusion about the central importance of Gorbachev in why the Soviet Empire went down without massive bloodshed. So it's good to know I'm in good company and great minds think alike. I want to present not an alternative theory, but an additional component to CJ's theory, and, and that's the way I hope that it will be taken, is like, it's not the thing I'm about to say in and of itself. And, and that is that there are things, whether they are shifts in society, whether they are um, inventions, it doesn't really matter. There are things that occur, and they occur when the time has arrived, okay? And so what I, what I mean by that is that there is, like, this thing is going to happen somehow, somewhere, some way. And where this really got driven home is back when Alex Shrugged was doing the history segments for us with the TSP Wiki, there were so many times that there was an invention, and you'd have these rival inventors, and they both basically came up with almost the same solution to the same problem. They always accused each other of ripping each other off, but in general you found that they both actually independently came to a very similar solution, a very similar invention. And that is, again, that is this concept of, like, there's this movement of time across history. And in this movement of time, there are certain things that are going to occur when humanity is ready for them to occur, whether it's inventing a thing or a shift in social uh, structure. And I think that when a, a group of people, a nation, is maybe held under a certain form of governance, there will be a time where that form of governance has reached that time of shift. And it was fortuitous that when that happened, you had a leader like Gorbachev who was willing to allow it to happen in power. 
But we also have this belief that these, uh, these, these rulers in these communist nations are like all-powerful dictators. That's part of our program. They have more authority in general than somebody like, say, the President of the United States. They have a lot of control over direction. But it is not the case that they can't be forced, they can't have their hands forced, or they won't find limits to their power within something like in the Soviet Union, the Politburo. And so there had to be some complicity beyond just Gorbachev within the whole system. And I think there's a point where even governments realize if the people have decided this and they're going to do this, there's a limited amount of ROI. And so I think actually the Soviet Union made a, a intelligent decision to run with the shift that they would see it as being more beneficial to them in the long term. I think that calculation was accurate. I think that had the Soviet Union remained the Soviet Union into modern times, that their problems, as, as deep as some of the problems for Russia are, would be worse. And uh, it definitely would be worse than many of the satellite republics that are now independent republics. Anyway, with that, let's move on to my discussion today. I want to talk to you guys again about AI and the pushback I'm getting and the hysteria. It's going to make humans extinct! Okay, so let's just go worst case scenario. The machines are going to rise in the next couple of years. They're going to either all turn us into batteries like the Matrix, or they're going to kill us all like the Terminator, and the world is going to be a hellscape. Okay, if that's the case, if that the worst case scenario is going to play out, nothing I say or do will prevent it. Nothing I say or do will prevent it. Okay, if I got on, if I changed the survival podcast into destroying artificial intelligence podcast, right, or humanity survival against AI podcast, and I dedicated the rest of my life to nothing but saying AI is a demon, right, or something like that, then absolutely nothing about the progression of artificial intelligence technology will change. The opinions of the masses on it will not change. What government's going to do with it will not change. What the oligarchy's going... Nothing will change because I've decided to fight it. It's like I talked about this whole decade of shift. People think they're going to fight it. They're going to stop it. You may as well go down into the milling of an old-style millstone being turned by a water wheel or a team of four Clydesdale horses where they had these massive stones going around and around and they dumped grain in and made flour. You might as well go down in there, stand up against the stone, which is as tall as you and weighs thousands of pounds. It's rolling around and try to stop that stone. That's stopping these technological shifts that are occurring. That AI is not the technological shift. It may be the keystone in them. But it's only one piece of the technological shift that I've been talking about since 2008. And I said the decade was 2020 to 2030 all the way back then. So we're going back, you know, we're going back 15 years because it's a 15-year anniversary of the show this summer. June 20th, the show will be 15 years old. And I was calling for that shift within the first couple of months of doing the show, saying this is what I see coming. And I didn't have an explanation for how it would all look. But I said that the decade of shift from 2020 to 2030 would look like the shift over half a century from 1850 to 1900. And it would be more like, let's say, 1860 to 1910, that 50 years. Because a lot of shit went 
ancient between 1900 and 1910, but it will look like a joke compared to what happens in 2020, 2030. But that 50 years, or take it from 1850 to 1910, 60 years, will be condensed into one decade. And this is just a piece of it. And I want to read the quote again from Alvin Toffler. The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And this is from a book that he wrote in 1970. That book was appropriately called Future Shock. And it's what really put Toffler on the map. It just made him an incredible success. He had huge uh, influence in many scientific disciplines after that. Wrote several more books, some with his wife. Passed away, I believe, in around 2016. So this book that he wrote back in 1970 would be 53, year old, 53 years old now. And he was definitely a forward-thinking individual. And it is written... If you read that book, it will feel like it was written for the decade you're sitting in. Well beyond just that one quote. And so I want to go back to the idea that if, if there is a Terminator-like end to AI, then there's literally nothing that you're going to do about it. I also think it's foolish to believe that. I think AI will be incredibly disruptive. I think it is dangerous. I've said that. But the idea that it's going to all of a sudden turn into a bunch of robots that are going to come kill us, you, you, you need to like turn the Hollywood off. And you need to understand what we're looking at is yet another new technology. And there's always been new technologies. I'm sure there were people that were angry about the wheel. I'm sure there are people that were angry about fire and being able to control fire. I'm sure there were people that had thought it was a bad idea when we invented calculators and computers. I remember people losing their shit over things like Google. And while Vin Armani is a friend, I guess he calls himself Spirian now or whatever, um, and he's a good guy and I like him, I remember people referring to Google as a demon and saying Google was going to take over the earth. right? Because it was too smart. We've, what I'm saying is, like I say so many times, we've done all this before. This isn't our first time that we've had new disruptive technology and humanity has managed to survive. So if we take the worst case scenario and say we can't stop it, and then we say anything less than that, this technology will exist, continue to expand, continue to grow more powerful, you either choose to use it, learn it, understand it, and possess it yourself... Or you choose to allow your enemies and your adversaries and your competitors, three different groups. Enemies are really dangerous. Adversaries can be dangerous. And competitors are dangerous to your, your goals, right? You allow all of them to access it, and you don't have it, and you get steamrolled. So instead of stopping the millstone, you go down into the millstones, and you, take a, you decide to just go down there, put some shades on, a little crack of sun comes through, you sit in a chair and you wait for the stone to come crush you. you. I mean, you don't really have a choice. You can either resist it and get killed, ignore it, and get steamrolled. Those are your choices, or you choose to adopt it. And I want you to just put yourself in a few different scenarios. Let's go back to World War II timelines, and the United States is developing the atomic bomb. Okay? Let's say of all the other nations, this would be good for us, I guess, maybe, right? But all the other nations said atomic bombs are bad. You can kill a lot of people with them. It's an un unbelievable amount of energy, and they're not going to stop at Fat Man and Little Boy that the U.S. developed. They are going to become, you know, 10 megaton, 100 megaton, multi-warhead ICBMs. Those are evil, 
We don't want any of those. Those are evil. We should not build any. And you had one nation, even the United States, that had a monopoly on nuclear warfare. You do you not think we wouldn't be an even bigger bully than we are today, and we wouldn't have more control and more influence, and we wouldn't move the world more towards centralized government under U.S. command than we already do. Okay? But what happened is we had other nations develop nuclear capability, and this created a standoff situation, which is scary as shit, but it's probably better than one nation having access to it. Let's go back to the time when the United States was dealing um, with uh, settlement to the West. We were basically screwing over the Native Americans. The Native Americans lost in the end. They ended up on reservations, etc. But they held out longer than most people ever thought. What if they had said these, these white people, these guns... They're bad. We don't want any guns. They would have had a lot less capability to resist. What if the, the colonists who wanted to be a free and independent nation from, from the United Kingdom, from Great Britain, the king, said guns and cannons were bad, and they decided that, well, we won't use those. Are, are you starting to see a pattern here? There were companies that when the telephone was invented said... We don't need no telephones. Telephones are stupid. And back at the time the telephone was being developed, if you, if you go back and you look at what was going on, how did a person do business with a company that they couldn't walk to or ride a horse to, that had, let's say, a catalog? They would get the catalog, and in the catalog, if they had a question, they would write a letter, a snail mail letter, and they would send it to the company... Somebody at the company would read it, write down a response, and mail it back. They would get the letter back, make a purchasing decision, and buy the item or not buy the item. Okay? That's, that's literally how things worked before there was a telephone. In time, people began to get telephones in their own homes. And the companies that were able to have a customer make a phone call, ask a question, get an answer, take an order, crushed the companies that resisted it. When the, when the Model T was released, it wasn't the first car, but it was the first mass-produced automobile. There were people that had heart attacks because they thought that the, the, the incredible speed of the Model T was exceedingly dangerous and people were going to die, not just being hit by it, by even driving it, that sooner or later you would have died because it went so fast. The absolute top speed of the Model T when it was introduced, like in ideal situation, was 45 miles an hour. But to the person looking at it in 1908, who knew nothing but trains that were on tracks, and were relatively slow, by the way, compared to what we think of as trains today, or horse and buggy, this seemed insane. No tracks to keep it going where it's supposed to go. It's just going down the road. And I want you to think now, because we think 45 miles an hour, it's like, get out of my way, Grandpa, I need to get where I'm going, Right? But stand on a street someday and let a car go by you at 45 miles an hour. Let it come by you somewhat close to you, you know, 10, 20 feet away, and watch it go by. Now, put it on a dirt road, make it kind of rickety and bouncing, and imagine you've never seen anything like that in your life. How terrifying is it? But the companies that embrace the automobile and eventually delivery trucks and things like that crushed the companies that didn't. When we... When we came into the world of the internet. There were people that thought the internet in of itself was the devil. Right? 
and the companies that embraced the Internet thrived, and the ones that didn't, didn't. How many technology have you seen rise in your adult life? If you're 50 or older like I am, you remember a time when there were no cell phones. Then you remember a time when there were the big brick cell phones that only rich people could afford. And it was such a status symbol that people went out and bought fake phones so they could pretend to have one. That really happened in the 80s. And you remember then kind of the, the rise of the pager. And then eventually the rise of the cell phone where people could afford it. Then eventually the smartphone. You remember a time when there was no social media. But companies that embraced social media, political candidates that did, crushed the ones that didn't. Why do you think this is different? Why do you think this is in any way going to be different this time? Because it's more dangerous? Because it's more disruptive? But if we don't end in a, in a giant bang, or a whimper, or becoming a, a, an exopod, Duracell battery with Morpheus trying to free us, if it doesn't end in that way, right? If times don't get tough, if they don't, do they get tough for you because you ignored this? And I want to say one more thing about this, and I'll let it go. For a while, anyway. And we'll come back and talk about it again. I've had people email me and say, You don't know what you're talking about. AI will never brainwash me. There's no way they could do that without me knowing it. You know, you're like the person that, that says that there's no person that can kick your ass. And I can probably walk down to an average gym and find 20 people in there that can kick your ass. Right? I've never claimed to be the toughest guy out there because there's plenty of people tougher than me. There's only one toughest man in the world. Not sure exactly who he is. There's probably a short list of about 20 that you could think of or, or research and find. But in the end, most people will get their ass kicked if they just try it enough times. You'll find somebody capable of doing the job. Or you're like the person that says, well, I can drink every day and not blow my liver up. Or I can use drugs that are uh, highly addictive drugs like, let's say, opiate, opiates. Or meth, and I'll be fine. You're ridiculous. You're denying the basic physiology and psychology of human beings. You're saying that you're a unicorn, that you're different. I'm telling you right now, the way this technology works, when it's it's about it's a tool, and it's about who has it. If you are somewhere with me, and you don't know I'm armed, and you ask me if I have a gun, and I tell you yes. You probably don't feel any less safe. You might feel more safe because if you know who I am. But if it's a stranger, you might be if, iffy on it. You don't really know. But if it's somebody you know who's a malicious actor and they have a gun, you probably feel a little bit scared about it, especially if you don't have one. And the great equalizer, in the words of Sam Colt, would be that gun. And so if you were in a place where there were bad actors with firearms... You'd want to get away, but if you couldn't, you'd want a gun. You can't get away from this. You're not a unicorn. You're not special. And if you don't understand what this technology does and how it does it, and most of the people saying that you don't even understand it's already been done to you a hundred times in your adult life, that many of the thoughts you think are independent and your own are not, even if you've worked hard to get clear of it like I have, you still have to accept that there's some of latency of it still there. And there's always the danger that it creeps back in. And that's why so many of our elderly, at a time when they should be the most bold, become the most fearful. There's few things in the world, in general, because I've met some that are totally the opposite, and they're awesome people. But an 88-year-old woman is usually the most timid person on the planet. 
the attitude of an 88-year-old woman, and I've, I've, like I said, I've met plenty of them that this is how they are, should be, I don't give a shit what you do. I don't give a shit what you say. I have a few years left to live. I ain't worried about it. But yet they become timid. It doesn't make any sense. Why would a person with only a few years left to live be worried about anything? We worry about the future, not the past. We are plagued by the past, but we worry about the future. The past already happened. There's nothing that can be done. The shorter your life expectancy, the less you have to worry about the future. Why are there so many elderly who are so timid? And they become more timid as they age. And I've known many of them, from family, friends, etc. It is because of the latent programming. It is because you're not acting like what you really are. An elderly person with only a few years left to live that should live however the hell they want. Right? And so, when this technology starts being used on you, and it will, and it will be, like I said on Monday when I did the show, unless you completely unplug from all of the grid, email, software, computers, TVs, video, it will be in everything. It will be the most sophisticated floors ever released this information in plain sight. Unless you know how to spot the pattern, you will be subject to what it does. And what they will do is they will chisel away at your beliefs and slowly replace those beliefs over time. And you've got to understand that this can happen over three years, five years, ten years, depending on how old you are. And you won't feel it. You won't feel it. Look at it in another way. Let's say I had a little gummy pair, right, with special sacred herb extracted into it, THC, marijuana, cannabis. It looks innocuous. It's a little bitty bear. And you say, but I've used cannabis my whole life. That little bear doesn't scare me. But it's, it's a crammed full bear. It's a good 5, 6x the dose that you should use. So you say it's just a little bear. And you eat the little tiny bear. And you end up in the fetal position on the couch waiting for it to end. But it wasn't going to happen to you. There are, there are innate things about human psychology. You know, the people that say, well, if I was interrogated, I'd never break. Yes, you will. Everybody breaks. Everybody breaks. Everybody breaks. And most of the time, it doesn't even require a lot of pain. It just requires enough time and the right things being done to you, and you'll break. If I hit you in the arm with a sledgehammer, it will break your bones. If I take this technology that's being developed and you don't know it's being used on you, it will alter your thought patterns. And my, my, I'm guaranteeing you that people say, oh, it never happened to me. You are the ones with fear eyes walking through the store with a mask on six months into the bullshit. And looking at people like me going, oh, you're killing grandma because you believe the ridiculous. I'm sorry it's true. This tech will not go away. You better not ignore it. It may be harmful if you don't ignore it. But it will be more harmful to you in the long run if you do. That's not saying you need to become a champion of it. But you better understand it. You better not hide from it. You better learn how it works. And you better learn how to use it. Especially if you're young. Again, I'm back to like, if you're 88 and you want to ignore it, I don't really care. And you shouldn't either. Right? It, you know, you got to decide where the cutoff is in your own timeline of age for not caring anymore, right? I don't have to worry about it. i got other shit to worry about. I don't care. 
But if you're a 20-something, a 30-something, a 40-something with you know decades of your career left, and you don't learn how to use this, as it eats jobs, the people best at using it will be the ones that are the most employable. You cannot like it. You can be angry. You can send me hard key strike. I can hear the keys tapping in the angry emails. You can, you can do that. But just like my opinion of it won't change what's going to happen, your email to me, angry at me, because you don't like what's happening, and I've become the personification of the thing you don't like because I haven't totally wigged out on it like you have, won't change anything either. Again, I could change the name of the podcast to Humanity's Survival Struggle Against AI. Get on here two hours a day and bash AI every day, and it won't change one quarter of one-tenth of one percent of the technological shift that is coming through AI. So I have no other option other than to understand it, harness it, and use it as is best in my life. And whether you like it or not, neither do you. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you're listening to it early in the day, right after it's released, you still have time to get on the live stream. If you go to tspclive.com, I will have Jeff Lawton on live starting at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time, 1600 hours CST for you military types. You can always find the next coming live stream at tspclive.com. And it's not a lot of, cha- a lot of the times you get a chance in real time, in live streaming, to ask Jeff Lawton questions. So check that if you can. And again, the audio of that show will be released on Friday tomorrow. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Show you a better way